Hello everyone, welcome back to The Brink. This week's episode is about a story that has been dominating the headlines. Last weekend, Russell Brand, the comedian and more recently conspiracy theory peddling YouTuber, was named in a four-year-long investigation into rape and predatory behaviour of women as young as 16. The investigation carried out by the Sunday Times and Channel 4 was far-reaching and trawled through vast amounts of data. While the focus has been on brand, and rightly so, there's been a part of the story that I kept coming back to. Why did all those people who worked with and around brand not say anything about the way he was behaving? Why was there such a culture of silence among professionals, young and old, towards someone who was being terrible towards women. I wanted to know more about this idea of what makes people stay quiet, so I took to the books to find out. This week's Brink is all about why cultures of silence form and what we can do to help break them. A culture of silence is depressingly a global phenomenon. In a large-scale study of attitudes at work spanning 33 countries, stories not that different from Russell Brand's are depressingly common. Whether it's car fraud, abuse in the church, abuse in sport, America's invasion of Iraq, or good old-fashioned sexual harassment in the workplace, people fail to speak up often. But before I go on, It's worth distinguishing the difference between people who have been forced into silence versus those who do not have such draconian measures put upon them. Harvey Weinstein, a turd of a man, famously gagged his victims with non-disclosure agreements that meant if any of them spoke out, they would be met with a lawsuit. What we're focusing on today is people who saw something and said nothing. Or worse, people who did say something to someone, but that someone chose not to do anything about it. Psychologists have been looking at this phenomenon for quite some time. A coherent theory emerged in the 1970s from German political scientist Elizabeth Noel Newman. The irony is not lost on me that the creator of a theory about people's views being suppressed was created by a woman, given what we're talking about today. Noel Newman called it a spiral of silence. And it was based on the idea that our opinions are constantly assessed and measured against our perception of others. In other words, if we don't think anyone else thinks something is inappropriate, we modify our beliefs to fit in. Why do we modify our beliefs? Because of our inherent need to fit in the groups we're in, even those we work with. The fear of social isolation, or worse, losing your job, can often be a powerful enough motive to say nothing. But recent studies have found other dimensions to our desire to keep stumm. Back to that international study once again, other facets of why silence emerges come when people believe speaking up just won't make a difference. Since the publication of Brand's allegations, there have been examples of people attempting to say something but found it was left wanting. In one harrowing example, when female staff at a production company protested a decision to ask Brand to host a show they were working on, they were told women wouldn't work on the production anyway. Moving on to other reasons why we don't speak up, One of the more interesting responses in the research I found 
was a desire to protect the superiors or colleagues in order to avoid embarrassing them. This is an interesting one I hadn't really heard of before. This silence motivation is different because saying nothing in this instance is about caring for people we deem important. Watching a boss do something stupid or inappropriate is met with a desire not to embarrass and humiliate them, even if that comes at the expense of the person they did it to. Last but certainly not least, according to the study, silence was used to gain leverage over the wrongdoer themselves. The study found that in some cases, people saw this as an opportunity to improve their own fortunes at the expense of those who had the misfortune of being caught up in this terrible thing. But I'd like to add a final dimension to this. Mr. Brand has consistently done terrible things. Here are just a few examples I found searching on the internet. On his radio show in 2007, before the scandal that got him fired, he instructed a 15-year-old girl to have a sex-themed party live on air. A few years later, on Jimmy Fallon, he grabbed and forcibly pulled a female guest to sit on his lap while cameras were rolling. In another example, he made sexual advances towards TV presenter Vanessa Feltz's daughters live on air. And last, but certainly not least, he prank called a rape helpline live on stage during a comedy set. In each of these examples, there is a common theme of disbelief, a collective, how is he allowed to do this, as it were? Having been in positions where I thought the same, I think there's a belief that someone more senior or with more authority will step in and stop them. A feeling of, if I think this is bad, surely one of the grown-ups will step in. The problem with that is, on top of the reasons I've mentioned already, is that it creates this idea that there should be someone in charge, or that there's one person who is in charge. I've worked in media for 20 years, and I can tell you the higher-ups don't always have the best record at doing the right thing. This is just my two cents here, but I think it's important to add, when we have these assumptions about our bosses or our superiors, that they are vigilant and looking out and making sure people are behaving, a lot of the times it turns out to just not be that true. So how the hell do we stop all of this? Going back to the books once again, what I found is these power structures are, in a word, powerful, meaning it can be incredibly difficult for members of a company or a team to change the culture single-handedly. There are a lot of articles on the internet that speak to this idea that culture can be changed through speaking up, and that might be true, but as was shown in a Dispatches documentary about Brand, some people did try to say something and nothing changed. Awareness or whistleblowing has historically come from someone on the outside looking in. Purdue Farmer, the unwitting stars of Painkiller on Netflix, well worth a watch by the way, was blown up because outsiders started poking their nose around how the business was run and managed to find people willing to talk about it. This is, typically, how things change. Here are some examples. Mark Whiteacre, the corporate vice president of Archer Daniel Midland, noticed his company was price-fixing in the 1990s. 
He tried to raise the issue internally, but he was dismissed. So he went to the FBI and worked for three years undercover to expose his employers. He would go on to become the subject of the 2009 film The Informant, starring Matt Damon. Worth a watch, I think. Next up, there was Vera English. She was a lab technician at a nuclear facility operated by General Electric in 1984. She noticed a frequency of radioactive spillages was way too high and contacted both her supervisor and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about her concerns. But nothing was done and they eventually fired her for even asking. It was only after she went and sought external help that she took them to court and won. Edward Snowden, he was a computer intelligence consultant that had noticed the NSA were doing things they shouldn't. He tried to draw attention to it and no one listened. So he went to The Guardian and other newspapers. Daniel Ellsberg, he leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times in 1971 after noticing the Johnson administration had lied under oath, not once but several times. Then there's W. Mark Felt, or Deep Throat himself, the secret informant to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the Washington Post reporters who broke the Watergate scandal in 1972. He was the associate director of the FBI, the second in command position at the Bureau, when he leaked information about President Nixon's involvement in Watergate. And finally, the brand story itself. This came from outsiders, not the companies he worked with or the executives that he was hired with. It was the courageous women and a few journalists who decided to work with those women to help them find a voice and speak out. So where does this leave us? If you're currently witnessing something where you work and you think someone should know about it, there are options. The first and probably most obvious is go and tell someone about it inside your business or company. If that doesn't work, there are other ways of doing it. The Freedom of the Press Foundation has a detailed guide on how to whistleblow safely, and they've also provided a list of publications you can report it to. I'll drop links to each of these in the session notes, so please check them out if they are of interest. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Brink. It was a really interesting subject that I hadn't really thought a lot of until I realised that I had been in businesses where people didn't say things and always wondered why. If you like this episode, please do give it a like and subscribe wherever you're listening to it. It really helps build this thing that I'm doing on my own. I really appreciate you guys listening and stay tuned for another episode next week. Oh, and while you're here, I also make long form video over on YouTube. I'll drop a link to that in the session notes as well. But if you're interested in these sort of subjects and want a bit more of a visual guide, I don't talk about the same thing on there. I pick a different subject every week. Do head on over there and give it a like and subscribe. That would be amazing too. Right, that's enough from me. Thank you for listening and I will see you next week. Bye!